When we're talking about something as ineffable, as great as the soul, it's hard. I went to Psalm 42, as my soul pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. That's Psalm 42.1. It appears that the psalmist is aware of his soul, aware of things going on in his soul, but still apparently in some way feels separate from his soul. I expect that will be a problem. He goes on to say, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That's Psalm 42, verse 2. Then he says, these things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. That's Psalm 42, 4. And then he says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Psalm 42, 5. Notice that as we go along, he appears to be more and more detached from his soul. Then he says, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. That's Psalm 42, 6. And then he finally goes on to say, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? That's Psalm 42, 11. There's something about the soul, and especially how David's viewing his soul or becoming aware of it. Because we're so unaccustomed to think about our soul or relate to our soul or to rest in our soul. For us, it's vague. So let's see what Teresa de Avila has to say. She says, before passing on, I want you to consider what will be the state of this castle. So beautiful and resplendent, this orient pearl, this tree of life planted in the living waters of life, namely in God. When the soul falls into a mortal sin, what she's really wanting to discuss here is, well, what does this wonderful jewel look like when the soul falls into mortal sin? I think that's interesting the way she puts it. Imagine finding a diamond and picking it up and examining it, looking at it, holding it up to the light, cleaning it up as best you can to get a good look at it, to see the quality of it, to see if you can see any fractures in it, to see if you can see any spots in it, any impurities in it. Because we know that diamonds come in all shapes and sizes and different degrees of purity and color. They're gauged on all these things, size, weight, purity, clarity, color. These things are all important. And in the diamond business, they actually have standards by which they judge diamonds. Well, what happens if a diamond slips out of your hand and falls into pitch, tar? Then you've got to pick it up again, retrieve it. And then you've got to try and somehow clean it off. And so that's how I see what she's saying here. Here's this soul, beautiful, resplendent, like a pearl, the tree of life planted in the living waters of life, namely in God. When the soul falls into mortal sin. So she wants to know, well, what is it like when the soul, which is so beautiful, falls into mortal sin? It's the same thing as when it falls into pitch or oil or mud or, or something dark and gooey and sticky. She says, no thicker darkness exists, and there is nothing dark and black, which is not much less so than this. So she's comparing all darkness, all blackness, to the soul in mortal sin. And she's saying, there is no darkness, there is no blackness that is as thick and as, well, thick, let's just say thick, as is the soul in mortal sin. You need know only one thing about it, that although the sun himself, who has given it all its splendor and beauty, is still there in the center of the soul. It is as if he were not there for any participation which the soul has in him, though it is as capable of enjoying him as is the crystal of reflecting the sun. 
the soul being lowered into mortal sin or falling into mortal sin, falling into this pit of pitch or oil or darkness or blackness or goo. And that pitch or whatever would naturally fill every crevice, every fracture, every pit, every place that it could. But it couldn't touch the center. It couldn't reach the center. All it can do is coat the outside, but not really reach the center. That's how I understand it. I imagine you'll understand it the same way because that's what it's really saying, although I've taken some liberties in, in trying to explain it. While in a state like this, the soul will find profit in nothing, and hence, being as it is in mortal sin, none of the good works it may do will be of any avail to win it glory, for they will not have their origin in that first principle, which is God, through whom alone our virtue is true virtue. This is so pregnant. Because she's saying so much here. She's saying that there is no real virtue apart from God. This is not what people believe. People believe that they can and are virtuous, that they do have virtue and that it can be separate from God, that they can have their own virtue, that they can own, that they can possess, that they can embrace a virtue on their own apart from God, separated from God. That's what people believe today. You have to believe that if you, if you don't believe in God. If you don't believe in God, it doesn't mean you don't believe in virtue. It means you don't believe in an ultimate, absolute virtue. You don't believe in a source of virtue apart from yourself. One of the things the Bible says, and is very subtle in the way it says this, but it will talk about a man being in his own country. And what comes after that is usually something not so good. Anytime you're in your own country, you're not in a good place because you have cut yourself off from your source. So the soul in mortal sin is a, is a soul that has cut itself off from its source. Its source is still there. Its source is still perfect. Its source is still as bright and clear as it's always been. Nothing can touch the source, but it can touch our means of union with the source. And remember, what this is all about is union with God. And that union can take place, as, as I understand it now, only in the soul. Can't take place anywhere else. Because if you'll have a look at Genesis in chapter 2, it says, And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. That's verse 25 of chapter 1 of Genesis. And then he says in chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female who created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to every thing that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And so the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. 
Now it's interesting, it's all completed. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. That's the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made earth and heaven. Now, here's what's really interesting. This is chapter 2, verse 5. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But here he says, and God made the beast, and then let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and so on and so forth. And God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and all this is yours. You have dominion. You have authority. You have the responsibility for all of this that I've created. All of the earth, all the living creatures in it. You're over all of them, right? And yet, there's no man to cultivate the ground. So it's like, what? Are these two stories of creation? Or is it just one story of creation with two layers? But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Okay, so there's no rain, but a mist rises from the earth and waters the surface of the ground. But the seeds still aren't sprouting. Nothing's happening. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. So what is this? So created man in his image after his likeness. Well, let's think about that. What is God? What is the image of God? What is the likeness of God? Well, to a very primitive mind, God is anthropomorphic. God is a bearded old man who lives in the sky somewhere, which is why the atheists like to call him the sky god which is really comical to me. That's what the primitive mind sees God as. But then later Jesus comes along and he says to the Samaritan woman, God is spirit and truth and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Not just on this mountain or in Jerusalem will he be worshiped, but he'll be worshiped in spirit and in truth. So again, we seem to have two layers or two sections. Now remember the soul has lower parts and higher parts. So let's say the higher parts are the spiritual parts. The lower parts are the parts that are closer to the physical, the sensual. Does that make sense to you? Okay. I like to make sense even when I don't make sense, which I realize is often enough. So then we've got the higher part created first. makes perfect sense, really. The higher part's created first, and then the lower part. So another way of saying it is the spiritual, the spirit, precipitates the physical. So you have mist, which rises up, but there's no rain. So there's no precipitation. There's a mist, but it waters the ground, but there's no precipitation. So then we have this precipitation. The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. It's interesting that the word here, being and soul, they can't decide which it should be. They can't distinguish. The word in Hebrew is nephesh. That's the word for soul, nephesh. And it is a word that is used for so many things. In the Bible, the list is staggering. Creatures, life, soul, all this stuff. And, of course, they didn't have punctuation in those days. Nothing was punctuated. It was just all one big run-on sentence. And the only way that it could be understood was in relation to everything else. So the context determined the definition of what was being said. If you removed it from the context, you lost the meaning and definition of it. Well, what is the first thing that the mind does or the intellect does when it's trying to figure these things out? The first thing it does is it takes it out of context. In other words, it kills it. 
let's put it this way. The empirical is scientific. So what does science do? It takes a living creature, let's say a frog, and then it dissects it. That is, it takes it apart. It takes it out of context. And when it does that, it kills it. And if it puts it all back together again, sews it all back together again, it's still dead. It doesn't come back to life. So the interesting thing is that the life isn't the sum of all its parts. Because when all its parts are put back together, the life still isn't there. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. But this is only the second chapter, verse 8. But remember back here in the first chapter, verse 26, he made man in his image and after his likeness. That's the spiritual creation, the physical creation or the physical manifestation of that or the physical precipitation comes later. And notice that it all comes later. Nothing's grown. It's all been, it's all made somehow spiritually, but physically it has not been precipitated. It is not manifested. There's no rain to precipitate and make it grow. So out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, there may be a tree of life and there may be a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it may be physical. I don't know. But I tend to doubt it. I tend to think that it's something spiritual, something beyond, above, over, more subtle than the physical. So we've got that. Teresa goes on to say, while in a state like this, the soul will find profit in nothing, and hence, being as it is in mortal sin, none of the good works it may do will be of any avail to win it glory, for they will not have their origin in that first principle, which is God, through whom alone our virtue is true virtue. So unless, I guess if you look at John, the gospel according to John, and you listen to what Jesus had to say about, I am the vine, you are the branches. You can't bear fruit if you don't stay in me. Well, this, she's really saying the same thing. She's saying, you can't have any virtue unless your branch is connected to the vine. That's where it draws its virtue from. That's where it draws its sap from. That's where it draws everything that nourishes. It draws it from that. Yet the branch has leaves and it takes the sun and it photosynthesizes the sunlight and it gives nourishment back to the vine. Yet the vine can survive without the leaves as we see in winter. The vine does just fine without leaves for a pretty long time. It looks like the vine's dead, but it's not dead. It's waiting. What's it waiting for? It's waiting for the soul or the leaves to reach up for it. What does a leaf do? In a sense, it looks to the sun. I mean, you watch something grow and it follow the sun like a sunflower does or any kind of a plant. You put a plant in a window, you will notice that the plant will lean toward the sun. And if you turn the plant around, it'll, it'll, it, it will lean toward the sun. No matter how many times you turn it, it will lean toward the sun. This is what the soul is supposed to do. The soul is supposed to lean toward the sun. Unfortunately, because we have been given free will, and when I say unfortunately, I mean unfortunately, for a long time for us, free will is a curse. <laughs> we, think of it, we think of it as a blessing. But, but when you really think of it and what we've done with it, it's a curse. 
It's only when we have some kind of light, spiritual light from God, that the soul can then begin to seek the sun. Spell it any way you want, S-U-N-S-O-N. Funny thing about Teresa is she says that although the sun himself, S-U-N, I don't think that's a typo. I think that's what she actually said. So she sees the soul has to seek the sun, but it's hard to say whether actively or passively. When the plant leans toward the sun, the light, does it lean toward the sun, the light, or does the sun and the light pull it? And that's the difference between active and passive. And it's a very subtle difference, but let's face it, it's a difference. Can we really say which it is? How can you say? You put the sun, you know, you put the plant there, the sun and the plant leans toward the light. Is it leaning toward the light or is it being pulled toward the light? Well, let's look at it another way. Let's say you've got a pruning knife hook, a pruning hook, and you go to the plant. Well, we know that plants don't really enjoy being pruned that much. They have a reaction to being pruned, but they don't run away. You go to prune a plant, it doesn't lean away from you, which is an argument for the plant really can't do that on its own. So if it can't really do that on its own, then it stands to reason that the sun is making the plant lean, not the plant making itself lean toward the light. I'm not going to say that I understand that or that it's that way and it's not some other way because I don't know, but I suspect that it is that way. I suspect that the sun acting on the plant makes the plant move. It certainly makes the plant grow. It certainly makes the plant bear fruit. We know that the plant in and of itself can't do that. It can't bear fruit. You take a plant, pull it up out of the soil, set it down somewhere, and it will die. That's like removing the sun from the center of the castle, from the center of the mansion, from the center of the soul. It's going to die. And since the soul has separated itself from him, it cannot be pleasing in his eyes. For after all, the intention of a person who commits a mortal sin is not to please him, but to give pleasure to the devil. And also the, the devil in darkness itself. The poor soul becomes darkness itself likewise. So as long as the sun, as long as the source remains in the soul, the soul is alive, though it can be alive in darkness. I would even say that it's life is severely diminished by the darkness. The further it gets away from, let's take a, a stream as an example, a nice mountain stream, snow melts, the water gathers together, it finds a way and it starts to collect and run down the mountain. It's going to be the purest and the cleanest at its source and then it will pick up stuff as it flows down the mountain, sticks, mud, leaves, whatever whatever get mixed in. And I suspect that in a sense, that's what the soul is like. At its source, it enjoys this freshness, this clarity, this purity. And the further it gets from its source, the more it collects other stuff. So we have the lower parts of the soul that are further away from the source and the higher parts of the soul that are closer to the source. But where you are in that stream or in that soul, is going to determine what you get, whether you get muddy water or clean, fresh water. Are we all on the same page so far? Okay. I know a person to whom our Lord wished to show what a soul was like when it committed mortal sin. That person says that if people could understand this, she thinks they would find it impossible to sin at all, and rather than meet occasions of sin, would put themselves to the greatest trouble imaginable. In other words, if we had a clue of what sin was doing 
to us. That is, is what separation from our source was doing to us, because that's what sin is. Sin is separation from your source. The more separate you are from the source, the further you are from the light, the darker things get. The further you are from the source of that fresh, clean, clear, pure water, the darker the water gets. Look at, if you were allowed to go to the beach today, you'd go and you'd, and you'd, you'd see that it's beautiful. And if you had nothing to compare the water rolling up on the beach to, if you had nothing to compare it to, you would think it's, it's clean. But if you go a couple miles out, you suddenly realize that the water close to the beach is filthy. As a matter of fact, at Scripps, you can go and get seawater from them. Scripps Aquarium down there in San Diego, you can go and get seawater from them. And they have a pipe that goes a mile out into the ocean and they draw their water from there. And that water is so clean and so pure, it's unbelievable. It's truly living water. You can take it and put it in a bucket and leave it there. And somehow you will find it's full of life little creatures in it, single cell creatures, you know, multi-cell creatures growing. It was an amazing thing when I had an aquarium, a saltwater aquarium. I remember put, putting that water in, getting that water from Scripps and putting it into the aquarium. And it was like the aquarium had just come alive. It was astounding. Everything just was brighter. Everything grew faster. Everything was more alive. It was amazing. Anemones would do well. Coral would do well. But once that water was filtered again and again and again and again and, and the animals did whatever they did in the water, as my dad would say, you know, back in the day, you know, fish go to the toilet in there. <laughs> yeah, dad, we did know that. Thanks. <laughs> and what happens is ammonia and nitrates build up in the water and it starts to become lifeless. And then the first thing to go is the coral. The coral starts to die. And then the anemones start to die. And then the fish start to die. And unless you replenish that water with water from the ocean, again, everything will die. It's just a matter of time and it'll all die. And then what they found in Germany in, the, in aquariums was they set up this thing so that they constantly had seawater dripping into their aquariums. And then they had old water, old aquarium water, dripping out. So they set up a way for it to be just slowly, constantly replaced. Not a lot, just enough. And their aquariums thrived. The creatures in the aquariums thrived because it had this constant source of life, this constant source of nourishment. Remove that and you've got trouble. What she says is when you start to see that, when you understand what that's like, then you'd put yourself to the greatest trouble imaginable to avoid that darkness, to avoid that blackness, to avoid that sin, to avoid that separation. May you be no less anxious to pray earnestly to God for those who are in this state and who, with all their works, have become sheer darkness. I don't think that any of us have to look very far in today's world to see that there are souls in sheer darkness. There's no question about it. You look at them and you think, but they're blind. They are void of love. One of the things the Bible tells us is in the end times, the love of many will grow cold. Eh, you look at it and of course the love of many has grown cold so many times throughout history. That doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It just means it's the end of love. It grows cold. If it grows cold enough and stays cold enough long enough, it dies then the soul is in sheer darkness. 
For just as all the streamlets that flow from a clear spring are as clear as the spring itself, so the works of a soul in grace are pleasing in the eyes both of God and of men. Well, you, know, you don't need God to tell you that someone is behaving in a virtuous way. You can see that yourself. When you see someone exercising compassion, empathy, forgiveness, care, love, charity, when you see someone doing that, you know it's a virtue. You also know, and it may not be as coarse, your knowing may not be as coarse and as solid, but you also know subtly when that person's virtue is based in self, when they're doing it to be seen by men, when they're being pharisaical, when they go and produce long-winded prayers, when they go and they take the chief seats at banquets, when they go and they pray in the street corners to be seen by men so that they can receive glory from men. Jesus says, well, that's, that's all lost to them because it's all for themselves. So we see that there is that when it comes to virtue. It's really not virtue, is it? It's just play acting. It's a persona. It's putting on a mask like the Greeks used to do in their plays. They'd put on a mask. And when they put on that mask, they weren't that person anymore. They were whatever the mask was. She says, for just as all the streamlets that flow from a clear spring are as clear as the spring itself, so the works of the soul in grace are pleasing to the eyes both of God and of men, since they proceed from this spring of life in which the soul is as a tree planted. It would give no shade and yield no fruit if it proceeded not thence. So if it didn't come from this source, it wouldn't give any shade. It wouldn't have any fruit to produce because its roots are in this source and it's drawing its nourishment from this source through its roots in which the soul is as a tree planted. It would give no shade, yield no fruit if it proceeded not from the spring because the spring sustains it and prevents it from drying up and it causes it to produce good fruit. When the soul, on the other hand, through its own fault, leaves this spring and becomes rooted in a pool of pitch black, evil smelling water, it produces nothing but misery and filth. I don't think you could say it any better. That's icky. You've all smelled stagnant water. It's nasty. And what do you find in stagnant water? Well, you find nasty things. It's not like there's nothing living in it. Oh, there are things living in it. They're nasty things. Diseases, mosquitoes, Larva, mosquito larva, that's, that's in that stagnant water. You'll always find mosquito larva in stagnant water. You won't ever find it in fresh running water. You'll never find mosquito larva there. You'll only find it in stagnant water, still water that has been cut off from its source. That's when the noxious things grow. It's very interesting, but <laughs> the thing about it is it's so obvious. How could people not see this? It's so obvious that cut off from the source, it produces stench, filthiness, darkness, and really wicked things like mosquitoes, which incidentally are responsible for a tremendous amount of pain and suffering on this planet. Malaria, what is it, Zika? Is that some other, all these different things that mosquitoes carry diseases to human beings and pass it on to them and kill them. What? comes from bad water. Cholera. You, you think about water that is not pure, that is not clean, that's cut off from its source, or that has a foul source or a poisoned source, and you got trouble, big trouble. 
She goes on to say it should be noted here that it's not the spring or the brilliant sun which is in the center of the soul that loses its splendor and beauty, for they are always within it, and nothing can take away their beauty. If a thick black cloth be placed over a crystal in the sunshine, however, it is clear that although the sun may be shining upon it, its brightness will have no effect upon the crystal. You, you don't have to go for What is it with women hanging things from their mirrors in their cars? When I used to go to the gym, when we were allowed out, before we were all enslaved by a tyrannical government, when you were allowed to freely walk about without masks, without papers, without identification, when you were allowed to live your life as a free human being in a free country, you remember back in the day, and maybe some of you still remember what it was like. It's hard to remember what it was like. It's easy to see that fear and darkness has blanketed the land, just like that black cloth has covered the crystal. You look at crystals hanging from women's mirrors in their cars, and you'll see they'll catch the light. Also, you'll see God's eyes and all kinds of weird things hanging from mirrors. And I've noticed that it's not guys so much. I would go to the gym and I'd sit at the light and watch all these cars go by, getting off the freeway, all these cars. And not all of them, but a few of them would have something hanging from the mirror. And I noticed after day after day, you know, five days a week watching this, that it was women's cars that had the stuff hanging from the mirror. Not saying that only women have stuff hanging from their mirrors. Not saying that only women have stuff hanging from their ears. They call them earrings. So don't get your lady panties in a wad about it. Or go ahead and get your panties in a wad about it because newsflash, I don't care. Your upset, your outrage, it just has no effect on me. I don't care. It's meaningless to me. Other than being humorous, it's meaningless. So there's really no point in expressing it because I don't care and I'm not going to change anything because of it, because I'm insulated from that. I'm insulated from rage. I'm insulated from anger. I'm insulated from disappointment. I'm insulated from mocking. I'm insulated from lies. I'm insulated from that. You too can be insulated from that, but it doesn't just happen. O souls redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, she says, learn to understand yourselves and take pity on yourselves. The problem with understanding yourself today is that when people understand themselves, they don't take pity on themselves. They relish, they wallow in their greatness, in their virtue, in their purity, in their imagination, because that's the only place their virtue and their purity is, is in their imagination. Because you know, the Eastern philosophies have the lotus flower and it represents the soul. Its roots are in the mud, the nasty, mucky, icky mud, and its flower is up out of all that. They like that in the East because it says something to them. It says that there is a lower part and a higher part to this plant, this flower. The lower part is down in the mud, in the muck, in the stench, but the higher part, the white lotus, the purity of it is up above all that. In other words, the higher parts of the flower, the higher parts of the plant. And so they liken it to the soul because the soul has lower parts and higher parts. The lower parts are in the muck because they are getting their data, their information through the five senses. The higher parts, if there are any higher parts that you reach, are pure because they're getting their nourishment from the light, from the sun. Actually, not strictly, but a combination. Surely, if you understand your own natures, it is impossible that you will not strive to remove the pitch which blackens the crystal. And this is the problem. We do not understand our own natures. 
we keep on, <laughs> this is bizarre, but today, more than ever, we keep on imagining that man is so wonderful, so good, that he can solve any problem, that he has no need of a God because he is a God. He has no need of wisdom because he is wisdom. And instead of God, we have today the philosophy is a collective. That is, you may not be able to do this thing in and of yourself, but if you collect up with other people, enough other people, then you will have all that you need. If you can make a collective big enough, you will have all that you need to build a tower whose top will reach to heaven and to make a name for yourselves. What does that mean? Well, it means to be God. It means to pull down anything that appears to be higher than man. It's just that simple. And this is where we are today. People don't understand their own natures. If they did, it would be impossible not to strive to remove the pitch which blackens the crystal. Remember, if your life were to end now, you would never enjoy this light again. Oh, Jesus, how sad it is to see a soul deprived of it. What a state the poor rooms of the castle are in. How distracted are the senses which inhabit them. And the faculties which are their governors and butlers and stewards. How blind they are and how ill-controlled. Now, this is really getting complex. You have the soul in lower, higher parts. Fine, we can deal with that. But now it's got guards in the outer court. There's reptiles and snakes and toads and whatever else that's noxious that we don't like hanging out there and coming in with the soul. We're coming in as you try to pierce through and get to the center of the soul. And now add to that the senses which inhabit, see, how sad it is to see a soul deprived of it. What a state the poor rooms of the castle are in. The castle is the soul. How distracted are the senses which inhabit them. Inhabit what? Inhabit the rooms of the soul. Inhabit the different layers of the soul. And the faculties. Now we have the senses which inhabit them. And the faculties which are their governors and butlers and stewards. What are these faculties? Well, we're pretty clear on what the senses are, at least the five senses. We're pretty clear on that. But the butlers, the governors, the stewards, how blind they are and how ill-controlled. Well, I can't see how anyone can refute this, how ill-controlled. You can't. We were talking last night, and I talked about meditating without thoughts. <laughs> People just laughed and said, yeah, right, like you could do that. <laughs> I said, well, just because you can't doesn't mean that nobody can. I have been able to meditate without thinking. Well, but, but, but. No, you can't do that because I haven't been able to do that. Really? You can't run a three-minute mile because I can't do it. You can't stand up because I'm a paraplegic. You can't breathe because I'm in an iron lung. It, it doesn't make any sense, but it's exactly how we behave. We behave as if everyone is just exactly like us. Newsflash, they're not. This is so difficult to comprehend. When you are the center of the universe, you think everything is like you are because you're thinking from this spot outwards, instead of from outwards to this spot. Instead of God created them in his image after his likeness, instead of seeing that first, you see God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and then he created an image and after his likeness. No, that's not how it is. First the spiritual, then the physical. So with the soul also, first the spiritual, then the physical. So the physical is last. The physical is what is precipitated by the spiritual. How distracted are the senses. And yet, after all, what kind of fruit can one expect to be born by a tree rooted in the devil? You know, I don't want to even talk about this. If people find it difficult to believe in God, they are probably going to find it difficult to believe that there is such a thing as 
the devil. And if they do, all they can think is what they've been told to think. What have they been told to think? Well, they've been told to think that this devil is a, a creature with hooves and horns and it's red and it has a long tail, pointy tail, and it carries a pitchfork. They're going to think a cartoon. Because you remember the cartoons and the angel on one shoulder, the devil on the does what the devil looked like. He had a long tail, pointed pitchfork, horns, he was red. It's bizarre. That is how mature people's ability to think is, which is highly immature. You have to depend on a children's cartoon to think from because you don't have any other basis of thought. You don't have any place else to start. But even starting there, we can dismantle that. And I'm not going to because you don't need it. And anybody who does need it probably doesn't want it. People are happy not believing in God. People are happy not thinking about a devil or some spiritual evil. They're happier that way. When you're a child and you just know you heard something, it's dark in your room, you're in bed, you heard something, whether it's in the closet or under the bed, and you pull the covers over your head, you just know that that will protect you. Nothing will protect you better than putting your head under the covers and getting in that darkness. That's how the children of the world, the children of men are today. They're pulling the covers over their heads and they're saying, like the cowardly lying, I do believe in ghosts, I do believe in ghosts, I do, I do, I do believe in ghosts. <laughs> When you think about it, it's funny. When you think about it a little bit more, it's not funny at all because this is the way the world is going. I once heard a spiritual man say that he was not so much astonished at the things done by a soul in mortal sin as at the things not done by it. Well, of course, I'm not so startled by a man whose clothes just caught fire of him running around screaming and rolling in the dirt. That's not going to surprise me. What would surprise me is what he didn't do. If he didn't do that, I would be surprised. If you catch fire and you don't go screaming and carrying on and rolling around in the dirt and trying to put out the fire, let's, let's face it, that's going to be more surprising than if you did do that. Yeah? This is what she's saying is that spiritual men say that he was not so much astonished by, at, at the things done by a soul on fire as at the things not done by the soul on fire. What's the first thing a soul on fire would do is well, try and put the fire out. He's astonished that it doesn't try to put the fire out. That instead of trying to put the fire out, it throws gasoline on the fire. That's where we're at. <laughs> Not a very good place. May God in his mercy deliver us from such great evil, for there is nothing in the whole of our lives that so thoroughly deserves to be called evil as this, since it brings endless and eternal evils in its train. What brings endless and eternal evils in its train? A soul in darkness that craves more darkness. That's what he's talking about. It is of this that we should walk in fear and this from which in our prayers we must beg God to deliver us. For if he keeps not the city, we shall labor in vain since we are vanity itself. What does this mean? We are vanity itself. What is vanity? That's a question. Close. Pardon? Mm, close. Cl vanity is nothing. It is nothingness. What does Solomon say about vanity? He talks about vanity. It's like chasing the wind. It's all these things that can't be grasped. It's nothingness. So what is nothingness? You separated from your source. Separate the soul from the light of God, and it isn't. If the separation, when the golden bowl is broken, when the silver cord is stretched and broken, the soul departs the body, taking with it the breath of the Almighty that was breathed into the nostrils that made the man a living being. Take the soul away, 
and the man, the body, dies. What happens if there's none of the man in the soul? What happens if there's some of the man in the soul? What happens if the man has found union with the light in the soul, the sun in the soul? What happens when it leaves the body? All these things, I guess we have to talk about. I don't see how we could not talk about them. And we're probably past time, huh? Yeah. So that means our time together is over for today. And if you want to hear any more of this, well, you know what you have to do. Mm -hmm.